Good morning. Today we start uh, a new book. We're, we are out of Nehemiah, and we're out of the Old Testament. We're into the New Testament in the book of Romans. So for the next several weeks, we will be there in Romans. So if you'll turn to Romans chapter 1, over the next several weeks, we'll be looking j- just at the first three chapters uh, of Romans. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Romans 1, 1, up through 1, 7. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the confidence, that the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, I don't know what you have in your Bibles, but in my Bible, all seven verses are just one sentence. Uh, It's a long sentence, but just one sentence. And that's what we're going to look at today. Let's pray. Father, for those of us who are not here today because of a mission endeavor, Father, we pray for their safety as they have traveled, safety as they uh, work on this field. Father, that, uh, Lord, that you will guide and guard their hearts and their minds and their mouths as they are witnesses for you and examples of of the saints here at Hazelwood Baptist Church. Now, Lord, bless this message. Uh, Father, may, may it impact those to whom you have prepared uh, to speak to through this word. It's your word. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, the book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul sometime during his third missionary journey, which would be in a neighborhood about 57 A.D., uh, just about eight to ten years prior to his being executed. But he wrote this while he was at, Cor- at Corinth. He addressed it to the churches or the Christians who were at Rome. So just a, a, a brief summarization of, of uh, when Paul wrote it and uh, uh, where he wrote it from. In chapters 1 through 3, which we will be looking at over the next several weeks, Uh, Paul discusses in fuller detail this particular question, and this is what we're looking at in the weeks to come. Can a person be obedient to the law? Now, we're talking about being obedient to the law. We're not talking about being obedient to the civil law as much as we are talking about being obedient to the judicial and ceremonial law that God had prescribed in the Old Testament. Can a person, and the moral law as well, can a person be obedient to the law, which is God's law, and be justified at the same time before a holy God? 
Can, can you practice the law and stand before God as a justified person? So that is the question, that, and Paul's going to address that in the first three chapters. So you see in the first three chapters that, 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 that Paul is going to expand that, not to the, just the Jews only, but to other groups as well. And we'll be discussing that as we go on through this study. So here at the beginning of chapter 1 of Romans, he says three specific details concerning himself. This is what he wants his readers to know. Number one, that he is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. You'll find that in verse 1, he's a bondservant of Christ. Number two, that he is called as an apostle by Jesus Christ. And number three, he is set apart for the gospel of Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ by God. So those are the three specific distinctives that Paul lists, that he's a bondservant, he's called, he's an apostle, and he's set apart for the gospel. So let's go a little deeper and get a better insight then. Because we don't want to just kind of leave you languishing there. Get a better insight in, in, uh, into who Paul is. And what I need for you to do, if you would turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. In Galatians chapter 1, beginning at uh, verse 15, Paul says, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb. Now listen to this. He said that God set him apart from his mother's womb. Uh, isn't that amazing that, uh, that, that, God, that Paul understands this? That even from the time that he was in his mother's womb, prior to his birth, that God had already pre- had a plan prepared for him. How much more should that be of interest to us when we think of, uh, you know, I've mentioned this many times before, but so many young babies that we have destroyed in the world uh, because of this uh, thing called abortion, we've destroyed them. But, God said, but Paul says that God from my mother's womb had set me apart for this task, for this ministry. I wonder how many young children God had set apart for something that had been destroyed. Verse 15, God set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem and to become acquainted with Cephas. Now, Cephas is, is Simon Peter. Was, uh, be acquainted with Cephas and stay with him 15 days. So we see here in these verses that uh, we need to notice that when Paul was called by God to attend to the preaching of his word, just like maybe you have known preachers who have been called by God to attend to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God did not simply call Paul, and as some believe that when God has called you to ministry that, that you're ready to go. Uh, folks, I, I want to I tell you something. A, a man who is called to ministry is called to prepare himself. That, that call is a call to preparation to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, that you know, you just don't say, hey, I'm, I'm called to become a preacher, and then you just 
go out and become a preacher and find some church to license and ordain you. But I believe it is a call to prepare yourself to be the best preacher, the best administrator of God's Word that you can possibly be, that you become well acquainted with the gospel. Spend some time in getting to know the books of the Bible. Know what they're about. Uh, have an idea of, you know, there are things in the Bible that are, you know, people, we, we say, well, it's all, the Bible is literal. Of course, the Bible is literal in a sense that it was uh, transcribed uh, by human beings who heard from God. However, understand this, that in the Bible, folks, I don't know if you're aware of this, I'm sure that you're aware of this, that there are similes and metaphors and hyperboles uh, that uh, and allegories that, that need to be taken in consideration. And when I say that, it's like in, in, in one of the Psalms it talks about, I believe it's in the 91st Psalm, it talks about God having feathers, and He covers us with His feathers. Now, if you believe God is a giant bird, uh, that might be all right, but I don't think that God is just a giant bird. Uh, so, you know, we need to look at this and understand that, that yes, that the Bible is a literal a literal book that God had given to humanity. However, that God, like us, speaks in things. Like if I said, man, I, I, you know, uh, if, I had a, if I had a dollar for every time something would happen, I'd have a million bucks. Well, you know you're just speaking in, in, uh, in, in a figurative manner. You're, you're trying to let the person understand that uh, this has happened many times. But the same thing is true in the Scripture, too, when we read it. Understand, and you, you just can't say, well, God's called me, and I believe the Bible is just exactly, exactly what it says. You know, one of the great difficulties we have when we look at the Bible, it says that a, a, a pastor or a deacon is to be the husband of one wife. Now, how many times has that come up? Uh, what does that mean? And, you know, uh, I can remember one time I was, uh, I was at, a, 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 at a church getting ready to preach. And I was, it was a little country church, probably not more than 25, 30 people. The years and years and years and years and years ago. But I was sitting at this church probably back in the 70s, 1970-something. But I was at this little church getting ready to preach. I was still in seminary. And uh, I can remember this, this one elderly gentleman was sitting there. And he says, I just got back from a deacon ordination and he says I voted again him he said the Bible says that he's to be the husband of one wife and he weren't even married folks if you if we become so literal that's why it is good it is good for a person to get away and to learn something and that is exactly what Paul did over here when he was when he was saved on the road to Damascus called by God from his mother's womb and went into the ministry he understood that he was not immediately qualified for this ministry Paul sensing the commission for which God had sent him part to do it says that he it says in verse 7 uh, in verse 17 uh, in Galatians that he went away to Arabia Paul needed in his mind and perhaps by God's own leading had to have proper time to be alone with God so that he could thoroughly entrench his mind and his heart into what God, God's Word had to say and who God is and how God was leading him. Foundational teachings 
for Paul of the Jewish Phariseeism had now been pushed to the side by Paul's encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus. What he used to be, God, God had, sent that, had set that to the side. Paul had set that to the side. What Paul used to be had now completely fallen and lie in ruins. A new foundation had been laid. A new theology had emerged in both his heart and his mind. What he used to be, he no longer was or is. It was upon then this new theology and foundation that a new way of life was to be built upon. Paul says, listen, I'm a new person. I have a a new foundation I'm going to build upon, and I have a new theology. I spent my time with God for three years and, 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 and tried to, to take as deep a glimpse into who God is as I can and who Christ is and what Christ's commission to me is and what Christ's charge for me is. I spent my time doing that and I, I lay this new foundation upon Christ and I have this new theology upon which I believe that God has led me to have. And it is not a theology of Phariseeism. It is a theology of a liberty that I have found in Jesus Christ. And not just a a liberty for the Jews only, but for all people everywhere. In 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul writes this, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So he he builds this new theology. He builds this new foundation upon the foundation that Christ has laid. When we were building a home, before we moved up here, building a home back in Bourbon, and uh, we had the, the, the excavators come by, and they, and they dug out the foundation to, to lay the foundation, but the, the ground upon which they lay that cement and, and, that, and that those, those, the foundation of the walls, it was so hard. It was so hard. It was, it was, like, it was like iron. It was... It was I've never seen anything like, I've never seen dirt so hard. They, they call it hard pan. It was absolutely the, the hardest ground I'd ever felt in my life. We tried to dig a little hole in there, and I tell you, you could, you could be hacking at it with a pick and a mattock and a shovel all day long and barely make a dent. And the, and the guy came up to me, he says, he says Pat, he says, you have got the most solid, the most solid foundation I can possibly get for you. It'll, it'll never, it will never move. And folks, that is the foundation that Jesus Christ is. It is a foundation that will, for sure, will never move. Even if, I don't care what, what fault line might go through, nothing's going to move the foundation that, that Christ is. And you build upon that foundation. You lay the walls and you lay the mortar and you lay the stone on that foundation. So you put a foundation upon a foundation, and on that foundation that you've built, others come along, and they build higher and bigger. So now for 2,000 years, people have been building on that foundation, and it has not moved yet. Jesus Christ is the rock upon which we build our theology, upon which the church is built. It will never be moved. So he lay aside his, his theology of Phariseeism. He has set a new foundation. In verses 2 and 3 of our text of Romans 1, Jesus is seen as the descendant of David who is to rule forever. 
Christ has come to rule forever. When Jesus came the first time, it was to rule forever. He, he set the stage for his kingdom to come. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who has come to earth as a human being had, and, and had taken upon himself the role of messianic king, and he will forever be the king. Philippians 2.7 says, but, speaking of Jesus, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. To this man, the man Christ Jesus, Paul built upon in that he may then preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And later in his letter to the Philippians, Paul writes, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Sad to say today that we have so many, so many who preach the gospel, say they preach the gospel, that have no idea that what they're, when, when they preach the gospel, they'll be preaching about Jesus Christ. Not, not their agenda, not issues, not social matters. We can, we can go all day and we can talk about social issues and social matters. And there's all kinds of new things. But he said, we need to be talking about this, this, and this, and this. That we need to instruct our people on all these new social issues and social cares and social concerns that we have. Folks, that's baloney. When a preacher stands up behind the pulpit to preach, and, and God forbid that we should not have a pulpit in the church. But when a preacher gets up to preach, he should preach the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ and nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. We don't need some fancy new jargon to excite the people and tickle their ears. You know, I like that song, Tell Me the Story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. In verse 4 of our text, we have this to consider. Jesus was born of the seed of David, verse 3, but he was, listen, verse 4 now, he was not made or born as the Son of God. Are you aware of that? That Jesus was not made or was he born to be the Son of God? So then notice in this verse what we're told, that he was declared, listen, verse 4, he was declared to be. He was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. If we were to look at verse uh, at, at, at Isaiah 9-6, Isaiah 9-6, Galatians 4-4, 4, 4, Romans 8-3, John 3-16, 1 John 4-9 and 10, you will see that Jesus Christ was not made or born to be the Son of God. It is a biblical fact that he was from all eternity. The uncreated, he is the uncreated eternal God. In John 1.1, we read, in the beginning. Listen, that is not the beginning of time or the beginning of creation, but from eternity past. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That Jesus Christ always, always was God from eternity past to eternity present till eternity to come. Jesus Christ will always, will always, will always be God. He didn't become God or a God. He is God. So Christ, Jesus Christ from all eternity, the uncreated eternal Son of God, when He walked this earth, He was charged by His oppressors 
and accusers to be blasphemous in his declaring himself to be the Son of God. Jesus says that he is the Son of God. And so those who accused him, those who were his oppressors, those who were his persecutors, they, they looked at that. And on, on two separate occasions, at least, you'll find in, in John chapter 5 and verse 18 and John chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, that they want to take him out and kill him and stone him. They wanted to get him out of the way because he made this declaration. To them, a blasphemous declaration. He says that I am the Son of God. And even to this day, 2,000 years removed, there are still those who will not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Come down in the flesh. In, in, in the epistle of 1 John You'll, you'll read on, on different occasions where, where John cites, he says, those who do not accept the fact of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that is God becoming man, those who do not accept that are the what? The Antichrist. Those are the Antichrists. So these people that were his accusers and his, his oppressors and his persecutors uh, they then condemned him in that he deserves to die as one who is regarded as a traitor to the God of glory. Where do we find that at? Luke chapter 22, verses 70 and 71. Therefore, it was his glorious resurrection then that he was declared. That, that resurrection is a declaration that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So as we come to verse 5, this is an interesting verse in verse 5. I don't know what you have in your Bibles, but let me read you what mine says. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about, and, and, here, and here's the phrase, the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. The obedience of faith. So what does that mean, the obedience of faith? You know, usually when we read Scripture, we will read something like that and just zip right through it, kind of like Sherman's March to the Sea, just zip right through it and, and say, well, I read it and that's enough. You know, it's amazing to me when we say, hey, I've, I'm reading the Bible. I'm reading the Bible through we are so interested in trying to read it through in a year's time that we will zip through something so fast you think that it's, 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 a, it's a Mach 2 drive through the Holy Scripture. If you come across something like this, pause and meditate upon it. Do some commentary work on it. Because what does that mean? The obedience of faith. It's not a term that you use every day. You don't just talk to people about the obedience of faith. What does that mean? But sometimes we're just so anxious to get to the, the 22nd chapter of Revelation. You know, we started a year ago at Genesis 1. Now, you know, 11 and a half months later, we're Revelation chapter 22. And man, I read the whole Bible through, but did you understand it? I would rather, folks, I would rather you spent a year and a half or two years reading through Scripture one time and pause and meditate upon it and reflect upon it. And maybe there's a verse there that God is just leading you to, to, to bring a, 
a part of it to memory. There's nothing in Scripture that says you've got to read it through in 12 months. You should read it every day. But there are some passages, there are some chapters that you can get bogged down in one chapter for a whole day. Well, I'm preaching to the choir, aren't I? What does that little passage mean, the obedience of faith? This is best understood in the context that the person who has been given the person who has, big, who has been given faith to believe, you find that in Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. I, I share this with you before, let me share it one more time. When the Bible says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, you've got to ask yourself the question, what does that refer to? That, the word that, in Ephesians 2, it is neuter. It is neuter. It must have as an antecedent noun, the noun preceding it, there must be a neuter noun. So if you go, the word that, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, so what does that refer to? Whatever that is as a neuter must have an antecedent or previous noun that reflects the same neuter. And you know what? If you go back before the previous noun, you find the word faith. Faith is not neuter. How many guys you know are named faith? And the word grace before that. The word grace, I don't know of any guys, there may be. But normally, those, those are feminine words. So the word that must have a, 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 a neuter gender. Not masculine or feminine, but neuter. So where does it come from? It is that whole process. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about getting saved salvation. Salvation consists of grace and faith. So the idea is this. Both the grace that God has given you and the faith that you have to believe, those are gifts from God. It's not a faith that you have within you. Why do we not have faith within us? You say, of course I have faith, man. It's my faith and I believe in Jesus because of my faith. That I... No, 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 friends. Listen, think of the scripture. Ephesians 2.1. And you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. There is no spark of divinity or deity or, or decency within us. What there is within us is depravity. Not divinity, but depravity. There's not a holy faith just running around and you just zipping through molecule to molecule. You're dead to the things of God. But God who administers both grace and faith has spoken to you through the preaching of his gospel and that faith, the faith then that God provides for you excites the person, that new person, that alive person, because of the regeneration and work of the Holy Spirit, excites that person to the place where they have been renewed, regenerated. 
They've come back to life from being dead in trespass and sins. You're now not law, no longer dead trespass and sins, but you're alive to the things of God. And then you're able to say, Jesus, I want you in my life. It's because God did it. It's not because we're good looking or cute or smart or short or tall or white or black or whatever. It's not because of any of those things. It's because God has done a work in your life through the preaching of his word. That's why the preaching of the gospel is imperative. You preach the word so that people can hear the word of God and the Holy Spirit works in people's lives and they respond to it. It's all a work of God. It's a monergistic work, not a synergism between you and God. It's like a contract between you and God. It's not a contract. Salvation is not a contract between you and God. It's a work that God does in your life. And you become a new person. The old has passed away. New things have come. The church, the Greek word is the ekklesia. The church has the meaning of the called out ones. The word church, ekklesia in the Greek, has the meaning of the called out ones. Or we would say the ones called out. The Bible plainly tells us in Romans 8, 29 and 30 that those whom God foreknew, he predestined, and those whom he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he will also glorify. So then, to this fact, we find in verse 6, our responsibility then as the church. The called out people of God that we are to, this is what it says in Ephesians 4, what, what does the ecclesia of the church do? We are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. You are the called, and not because God has called you to be the church. He says, now, I want you to walk in a manner that exemplifies you being the called out people of God. You're the ecclesia. You're the church. Act like the church. So you may be thinking, what is the manner of my calling then? What, what is that manner by which I am to walk? In Ephesians 4, 2 and 3, Paul further elaborates what our called out lives are to look like. And he details, for the church, he details the manner of our walk. He speaks of we're to walk with humility, with gentleness, with patience, with tolerance, with love, and with unity. That is the manner of the walk that the church is to have. Brothers and sisters, if we were to do that, there would never be another church split for all eternity. <laughs> but it's a matter that the problem is that sometimes we don't walk with humility and gentleness and patience and tolerance and love and unity. Sometimes, maybe not in this church, but every other church, there could be a matter that is divisive. So we come to verse 7. Verse 7 says, To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We will close with this verse. This is, this is quite interesting. 
Verse 7 simply calls, calls uh, states that we, the believers, are saints. Tells us that we're saints. I don't know if you're aware of this or not. We, we do not need to wait for some pontifical decree to declare us to be saints. You know, you hear all the time that the church has declared this person to be a saint. It's not the church's job to declare anybody to be a saint. That's God's job. You're waiting for the church? You're waiting for the you're waiting for a bunch of sinners <laughs> to say that somebody's a saint? You are called to be saints not by the church, not by pontifical decree. You're called to be saints by the infallible Word of God. When a person has put his or her trust into Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, they are, they are Saints. The word of God declares us to be so. God's word has already confirmed it. Our decree to sainthood stems from the unmerited working of grace that God has demonstrated in our lives by granting us the faith necessary to believe the gospel. God has given you the faith necessary to believe the gospel. It's not, again, it's not something that's in you, it's out of you that comes into you. And by believing, we receive the benefits. You and I receive the benefits of Christ's cross and the sealing of God's Spirit that is the sure guarantee of our eternal salvation. You know, one of the great doctrines that we have, and I think every one of you would attest to this as Baptists, that once saved, always saved. you like that term? Once saved, always saved. You know, the better term, I like the term the perseverance of the saints. That no matter who you are, where you are, what you are, when a person has truly come to Jesus Christ, that that person will persevere in the faith to the very end. You will. And the reason you will is not because you have the power to do so, but the benefit of Christ's cross makes it possible. The benefit of Christ's cross, listen, here, the cross of Christ is here. You are outside that cross. When Jesus, when Jesus died on the cross, he died, if he died for your sins, folks, and you received the blessings of that gospel, listen, you are transformed. You are trans formed or transferred from where you are dead in trespasses and you are placed into Christ and you are dead with Christ on that cross he is buried your sins are buried he is risen from the dead you are risen from the dead and you are raised to walk in the newness of life Romans chapter 6 and verse 4 you are not because of baptism but because of the benefits of the cross you are raised to walk in the newness of life it is a benefit of the of the cross and because you are in Christ in Christ dead to the old alive to God because you are there he keeps you there you do not keep yourself there he keeps you there John 10 28 and 29 
He keeps you there. No one can pluck you out of his hand. No one can pluck you out of his father's hand. He keeps you there. Some people say, well, I can take myself out. Well, what ridiculous statement is that? You didn't put yourself in and you ain't going to take yourself out. It was God who brought you into his kingdom. He has, transfer, he has transferred you from the domain of darkness into the, blood, into the kingdom of his beloved son. He has done that. He has put you in. He has, uh, 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 Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. He's, he has the, sealed you with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of your being glorified, one day being glorified. And we have the assurance that one day, one day, there will be a, a full, a full redemption of this body. I believe this. You know, people say, well, what am I going to look like? I, folks, I have no idea what we're going to look like in glory. But I know this. Whatever, I don't care if they cremate you and bury you at the sea and separate each particle of the ash from one place to, the, to another. That does not concern God, that the spirit of that individual is already with Christ. And Christ will give that spirit, that spirit being a new body, a glorified body ready for heaven. And you'll be with him eternally. And when Christ returns, you'll return with him. When Christ establishes his kingdom on earth, you'll, you'll be there with him. You'll reign eternally with Christ because that is a benefit of the cross. Not a benefit that you keep yourself there, but a benefit of the cross. A fellow by the name of Kenneth Wiest has written uh, a, a word study. S several volumes word study of the books of the New Testament. But in his word study, he writes concerning this last verse. Thus a saint, this is a quote, thus a saint is a sinner who in answer to his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ has been set apart by the Holy Spirit for God and set apart from sin to holiness, from Satan to God, out of the first Adam into the last Adam, to live a life apart, to live, to live a set apart life of salvation or of separation, I should say. To live a set apart life of separation. Church, you are God's called people. Just as Paul was called, just as the apostles were called, the disciples were called. Just as people generations and generations before you were called. So you are called today. And so others be called who will follow us. If Christ tarries his coming, they'll be called also. Millions will be called until Christ determines that the end has come. But God continues to do his work and he calls people. And he brings them into his kingdom. And he keeps them there. You are his child. You are declared to be a saint of God. Because it is God's word to you. God's word of assurance. That that is who you are. You are his saint. And you'll forever be that. Because you have put your trust into Jesus Christ. So enjoy him. Enjoy the blessed benefits of his salvation. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you today, Lord, for this opportunity for worship. Lord, we're absolutely dead, desperate, depraved, doomed without you. But Lord, you have, you have called us. You've called us through the preaching of your word that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. Lord, that, Lord Jesus, that you had taken upon yourself our sin and your Father's wrath, that you died that you were buried, that you rose again on the third day and declared to be the Son of God because of the power of that resurrection. Father, we just bless you today. Father, thank you. Thank you for each person that's here today, Lord. Should anyone here want to respond to the gospel, Father, we know it's just through the work of your Holy Spirit speaking to them. If that is your will today, Father, we gladly submit to that. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to corporate worship. In your name I pray, amen.